Today we are continuing our story in Genesis. Genesis 21, we're going to be reading the scripture first. So Genesis 21, we're going to start at verse 8 and then go through verse 21. So Genesis 21, starting at verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. In every tragedy that people encounter in life, the question is inevitably asked, whose fault was it? that this shocking thing happened. As humans, we want to know who to accuse, on whom shoulders the burden should rest, who is to blame. This is a normal question to ask. If we're watching an event on the news or hear something tragic that happens to someone around us, we may assign blame as we make up what happened, our mind based on our own notions of right and wrong. However, if we're in the middle of the story ourselves, it's more complicated as we may choose to take or deny blame, even while others around us act as judges. Even when blame may not exist, we may still want to pin it on somebody. In the Gospels, when they encountered a man without sight, Jesus' disciples asked, whose sin was it that caused this man to be blind, his own or his parents? We want explanations for the sufferings in our lives. The classic story in literature which fuels this conversation is Romeo and Juliet, or for contemporary movie version, uh, Sears' The West Side Story. Both depict two families who hate each other in an atmosphere of manipulation and drama. There are friends who avenge each other. 
a man of the cloth who tries to bring people together, but whose methods bring more harm than good, to teenagers who have lots of feelings and get entangled quickly as they spiral into chaoses and make choices that lead to their deaths. Now, teachers have students analyze Romeo and Juliet and ask whose actions in the story contribute most to the sad ending of the story. This is a good exercise for real life because inevitably these students will find themselves when they're grown up at some point in their life looking around and wondering, how in the world did I end up here? And because we want them to be critical thinkers, to learn to look at situations from all angles, not just one. But why is it that we need to have a definitive answer on who's to blame? Is it because we want justice for those who are wronged? Do we want someone punished? Do we want everything wrapped up neatly in a gift box with a bow on it for life to be obvious? But real life, as we know, is more convoluted than simple. There are very few situations where just one person is in the wrong. It is usually a collective effort. The narrative that we've just read is one where people have acted in their best interest to get what they wanted, but find themselves unhappy. And each of them made decisions that added to an end result that is deeply unfortunate, if not tragic in nature. Last week, we talked about learning life lessons about how we could be better people based on the inspiring stories of others. Today, we look at a story where we could learn how not to act. What is going on is difficult for all of these people, but it didn't need to play out the way that it did. So God finds a way to bring redemption to the situation. So I want us to look at who had a hand that led to the sad outcome. While we wonder how we might respond if we were one of the characters and being open to see how God might speak to us today through this story. The first person we want to talk about is Sarah. She's a key player in this drama, and she may appear to bear the brunt of the responsibility of all of this when we first read it. We know that Sarah wants a baby very much, and when that doesn't happen, she takes control and tells Abraham to use her maidservant Hagar to bring it to fruition. They are at this point back in Canaan, and you will find this story in Genesis 16. Sarah was simply asking Abraham for a surrogate, which would have been acceptable in their culture at the time. It is interesting that no one seeks the Lord about this arrangement. They all just comply with what Sarah desires, as her pain is so great at being barren, and a simple solution to the problem is close at hand. The roadblock here was her pregnancy, and the way around the closed road was to have a baby by another means if God was not going to provide one. This is a common way that we live. If we believe that God has promised us something, if we believe that God has promised something will happen, as in this case, when he tells Abraham and Sarah that a child will be born and it doesn't happen, then we think it is up to us sometimes to assure that it does. After all, he's given us brains and resources and creativity. And if he doesn't shut the door on our brilliant idea, then that must mean that it is his will. It certainly gives us what we want more quickly. 
When we decide to go one way that seems like a good idea, it's always prudent to pause, to consider the possible consequences from such a decision. Maybe the couple discussed this at length, although what is recorded is what Sarah said. Here it is. You will see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. From the biblical account, at least, there is no asking God what he wanted. In fact, he is being blamed for the fact that she had no children. So, problem solved. The bigger issue, though, is how Sarah acts towards Hagar. She is harsh with her and responsible for Hagar being cast out twice. When we read this, it's tough for us to read how Sarah's anger becomes fuel for treating another human being in ways that are ugly and unkind. Sarah is in the power position as she is in charge of the household. Yet once she gets what she wants, it's evident that Hagar having a child under her roof is harder for Sarah than not having a child at all. Isn't that so typical of us? We obsess over what we want and think that we need to have in order to be complete. We make great strides to make sure that it happens no matter what it is or how much we might lose our soul in the process. And once we get what we thought would give us peace, it often ends up not being as great as we expected. In this case, Sarah's pain increased because of her actions. Now she has no child of her own, but her husband does with a woman she can't stand who lives in her own house. What a mess. Sarah could have loved Ishmael as her own, sharing in the joy, making a home for he and Hagar with the idea that she, that was yielded by her, but she chose anger instead to mask her hurt and her jealousy. And instead of being grateful for what someone else did, which was a big ask, Instead of being thankful for a child to love, she viciously turned on Hagar, who had what Sarah wanted. We saw last week how Sarah's inability to own her own behavior, even when it was pointed out by the Lord, was a problem. It is the same here. The second person who shares some blame is Abraham. First of all, he goes to Egypt when there is a famine in the land that God has given him. And scripture doesn't record that this is what the Lord wants him to do. This is where they first meet Hagar. And perhaps she is given to them, scholars say, as a parting gift by the Pharaoh to whom Abraham lies in order to save his own life. You remember from last week, he told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister. Not his wife, because he was afraid that Pharaoh would kill him if he told them the truth. However, after Pharaoh takes Sarah into the palace as his wife, the Lord afflicts his entire house because she doesn't belong to him. And even Pharaoh has the sense to know what is happening and says to Abraham, why have you done this? Why have you lied to me? Sarah's control comes from being afraid. 
And Abraham's lies also stem from his fear. We see that Abraham seems to be afraid of disagreeing with Sarah because he doesn't seem to ever do it. Ever. She says the servant Hagar should bear them a child. And he goes along with it. When she says Hagar is bothering her and needs to be disciplined, he tells her, you're in charge. She says that he needs to send Hagar and Ishmael away, and he complies. At every juncture, when Sarah insists on something, Abraham allows it, even if it might be questionable or one that might dishonor the God that they serve. Sarah seems to be the main person to blame here, but Abraham acquiesces to everything she wants. His passivity is just as much to blame as her aggressive ways. This isn't a marriage of equality. It's upside-down headship for their, talent, for their time and their culture. He bears equal responsibility for what happens to Hagar and his son, perhaps even more. Because they would have needed protection in the surrounding neighborhood with the people around them against who would harm them. Abraham's name protects Hagar and Ishmael. He's a leader And his family would have been vulnerable to enemies. But who would protect Hagar from his own wife? No one. The one piece that is telling is how Abraham's heart is distressed when he is going to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Because he is bonded with his son. This is his flesh and he is heartbroken because he loves Ishmael and doesn't know what will happen to them. But God's assurance helps him to know that all will be okay. Without that guarantee, one wonders what Abraham would have done. The roadblock here is that the women aren't getting along. We don't have details, but we can make some educated guesses. We know what it looks like when women don't get along in a household. Whatever has happened, Abraham will take Sarah's side. His tender feelings are for Ishmael, not Hagar. And although he is quite wealthy, he sends them away with bread and water. It is no wonder Hagar thought she was going to die in the desert. The people who have been given so much give so little in return. The couple who had prayed and waited, for whom we have genuine empathy, had very little interest in extending the same mercy that they were given On the same day that Abraham and Sarah were dedicating their son to the Lord, Hagar is being cast out with the firstborn son. This is more than being flawed. This is just mean. People of privilege sometimes act badly to those whose use to them expire. While this is a lesson we see throughout history and even today, we don't expect it with those who are foundational people in God's great plan. Abraham bears culpability just as much as Sarah does in what happens. But let's talk about Hagar for a second. In this story, she is the one without power. She's a foreigner. She's a family slave. She has no means or resource. While it is not clear if she had a choice to bear their child, it is true that she would have seen a dramatic rise in her social status for doing so. She would have moved from being a servant to being the mother of the firstborn of a great leader, a second wife of sorts. When she becomes with child, though, she looks with contempt on Sarah. Did she mock her? 
Did she lord it over her mistress because she now is in the power position? Who knows? But Sarah, who was already sensitive to the shame of her barrenness, doesn't like it. Hagar gets treated harshly and runs away. And she's met by an angel of the Lord who talks to her and says, you have to go back. You have to go back and submit to Sarah. You are already with child. Your son's name will be Ishmael and he will be a wild man. But he will be a great um, leader in his life because of Abraham. He is favored by God. And Hagar feels so overwhelmed that she has met Yahweh that she calls him the God who sees. In the intervening years, which could have been as many as 16, go by and something happens the day that Isaac is weaned. Sarah reacts to either seeing the two boys playing together or Ishmael is actually mocking her son. The Hebrew is not clear. And Sarah demands that they are sent away. And this is the wrenching part to see. Hagar has no choice but to go. Hagar thinks this is the end of her life. She is wandering about in the wilderness with no hope after water runs out. And she throws Ishmael under the bush and doesn't want to watch him die. But God miraculously meets her for a second time and provides water, thus ensuring that their life will be the one that God has planned for them. What do we learn from Hagar? Well, one might, uh, idea might be to not exacerbate an already difficult situation with your superiors. Hagar misjudged her station. Had Abraham loved her, she might have gotten away with her prideful actions towards Sarah. This tells us that she didn't offer to help because of compassion, but for what she could get. Although she is largely a victim here with no voice, what little position she had, she lost when she used it against her employer. Humility might not have mattered in the end result, but she would have left with her dignity intact. And then there is the Lord. He has offered a great many freedoms in this story. The trip to Egypt, where Hagar becomes part of their family, the idea of surrogacy, He himself created Ishmael inside of Hagar. He does not allow her to leave, but makes her go back. He again gives life to Abraham and Sarah, setting up a blended family. When we see situations like this or we are embroiled in them, we wonder where God has been. We love our freedom, except when our liberty means that we suffer because of our own choices then we can turn on God like Sarah did. There's mystery in free will. How much does God allow in our lives? How much does he intervene? In what ways does he act in our favor when we don't see it? How can we continue to trust in his goodness and his faithfulness when we don't experience the fullness of the life that we thought we were promised? How much do our choices, even the bad ones, play a part in his overreaching, overarching purposes here? One truth that has to be pointed out is God's grace in this passage. If grace is unmerited favor to those who don't deserve it, then all three of these people receive the Lord's grace in abundance. His guidance and provision and mercy continue to be theirs as they were navigating with their brokenness through this stressful situation. He gave assurances 
of his presence and mercy, especially for Hagar, who got to have two experiences when most people in her time didn't even have one. Although Hagar and her son were not part of the promised people, they received real help from the Lord in a time of need because his care and love is for everyone, even if they don't closely follow him or are part of his family. And Abraham and Sarah still received in full measure what was promised to them. So from this story, we might ask ourselves some questions. Am I using another person for my own gain? Am I standing by passively while someone is being hurt instead of standing up for them or for their dignity? How has my sin damaged someone else? Am I at the end of my hope needing the refreshing mercy of God's living water to save me or to save my family member? Well, our tendency is to look for blame Perhaps what stands out the most in this story is how God deserves praise for how he chooses to act. Maybe instead of looking for blame in situations, we should look for where God is showing mercy. Because God is about making sure that life continues to grow, even when we make hurtful and sinful choices. We look to blame, but the story never ends where we think it does. Abraham and Sarah and Hagar's story doesn't end here. They kept going and got to experience wonderful things that the Lord had for them. It's how we are able to move forward in grace that is the redemptive part of the story, the most important part of any story. We are never alone. God is with us. So as we cry out to him in mercy, may he answer and bring us the help that we need. Let us pray.